in Isaiah 55, we read these words, and they just happen to be our dear Michelle's favorite verses. It says this, the Lord speaking, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Today, uh, we're talking about something that is hard to grapple with in some sense. And the simple point of today, if you don't take anything out of this apart from this point, it's that God takes his sovereignty seriously. That God takes his sovereignty seriously. And we're in Acts 12, so it'll be up on the screen, but I'd encourage you to grab one of the paper Bibles uh, to travel along. But this is Acts 12, and I'm just going to read it and then make a few comments and, and continue. Acts 12, verse 1. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. And he had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. When he saw this met with approval among the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the festival of unleavened bread. And after arresting Peter, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. To 16 guys. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover, which coincidentally was a celebration of God's rescue from slavery. And so Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. And the night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and sentries stood guard at the entrance. So he's not going anywhere, right? At all. And suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared, and a light shone in the cell. And he struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said, and the chains fell off his wrists. Then the angel said to Peter, put on your clothes and sandals, and Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me, the angel told him. So Peter followed him out of the prison, but he had no idea that what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. Verse 10, they, they passed the first and second guards and came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself and they went through it. And when they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. Verse 11, then Peter came to himself and said, now I know without a shadow of a doubt that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were hoping would happen. Pause. God was sovereign in Peter's situation. Herod had every intention to arrest him and try him and probably kill him. And yet God sent his angel and said, you go get Peter. Continue. Verse 12, uh, verse, yeah, verse 12. When this had dawned on him, the fact that God had rescued him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. Now, there were over 5,000 disciples at this point in time, right here. And so this would have been one of many houses where people were praying for Peter, which is an incredible image, right? The, the people of God praying for people in need. And so he shows up at this house and he knocks at the outer entrance and a servant, and I love that they named the servant. No one is insignificant in, in God's story. They named her, a servant named Rhoda, came to answer the door. 
And when she recognized Peter's voice, obviously she knew him, she was overjoyed. She was so overjoyed, she ran back without opening the door and exclaimed, Peter is at the door. You can imagine, Peter's like, come on, just at least a nudge, open the door. And then they told her, and this is really reminiscent of when uh, the women come to, uh, back to the disciples after they've visited the empty tomb and they realize that Jesus is alive. The disciples answer basically the same way, you're out of your mind. You're speaking nonsense. That just doesn't happen. He's in the jail, tied up. He's got all these guards. They're out of your mind, they told her. But she kept insisting that it was so. And so they said, well, it must be his angel. It can't be him. It must be his angel, right? If, like, that's logical. <laughs> uh, but Peter kept on knocking, as he would. You're out in the cold. And when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. Which makes a lot of sense. They thought he was an angel. Um, Verse 17, and Peter motioned with his hand for them to shush, and he described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. So Peter knew, God was sovereign in my situation. No one else could have got me out of this mess apart from him. And he tells them that. And then he says, uh, describe how he got him out of prison, tell James and the other brothers, that's James, the brother of Jesus, tell James and the other brothers and sisters about this, he said, and then he left for another place. You'd expect him to go into a whole long-winded thing about how God had led me through all these things and stay the night, but he just leaves, which is fascinating. Uh, verse 18, in the morning, there was no small commotion among the soldiers as to what had become of Peter. Not simply because they'd lost the guy, but because it was their head that they lost the guy. Like, they were worried. They were, they were done. They'd lost the prisoner. And after Herod had, had had a thorough search made for him and did not find him, he cross-examined the guards and ordered that they be executed. This is not a good day for the guards. It's not even their fault. Um, and then continues, Then Herod went from Judah to Caesarea and he stayed there. He'd been quarreling with the people of Tyre and Sidon. They now joined together and sought an audience with him. And after securing the support of Blastus, what a great name, a personal servant of the king, they asked for peace because they depended on the king's country for their food supply. And on the appointed day, Herod, wearing his royal robes, sat on his throne and delivered a public address. And all the people shouted, this is the voice of a God, not a man. And immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down. And this is very vivid imagery. <laughs> he was eaten by worms and died. So he didn't die when the Lord struck him down, he died because the worms ate him. What a delightful way to end. And then verse 24, and I love this as a footnote, but the word of God continued to spread and flourish. I was reading our dear Steve Addison's book on Acts the other day, and he makes a very good point that the angel that uh, redeemed Peter, all of a sudden God's sending another angel to finish Herod, that God is sovereign in this whole thing. But what I want to point out today is that it's not just about world leaders who do bad things who get knocked off, right? Um, one of the saddest stories for me as I read through the Old Testament was uh, the story of Moses. It starts great, he's a bit um, funny about speaking to God's people and redeeming them and all that stuff, but he has this 
huge amount of responsibility as a leader. Enormous. God's put a lot on his shoulders, so much so that you read in the book of Numbers, a bit earlier if I can find it on the fly, in, uh, yeah, in Numbers 12, Miriam and Aaron, they're, they're leaders as well of this community and they're, they're just fed up with Moses getting all the Guernseys and so they start whinging and God says to them, you know, when there was a prophet among you, I, the Lord, reveal myself to them in visions, I speak to them in dreams, but this is not true of my servant Moses, he's faithful in all my house, with him I speak face to face, just imagine that, God speaking to you face to face, clearly and not in riddles, he sees the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? And Miriam in that moment meets with the sovereignty of God and says, if you, if you don't think I'm running things well, well, let's just remind you who's in charge. Have some leprosy, for good measure. But it's sad for Moses' story, because if you flick a few pages further, and it will be up on the screen, in Numbers 20, Moses misses out on the promised land that he'd been leading the people to for over 40 years because of this story, because of this event that he's led the people of Israel for over 40 years in the desert to this place that sounds amazing and he misses it because he doesn't honour God as holy, because he doesn't, he doesn't just honour God as the one who's in charge. He doesn't listen and follow through, which he, out of anybody, should have known better because he's speaking to God face to face. He's seen the whole... God, God spoke to him out of a burning bush so let's read this story. Numbers 20, verse 1. In the first month, the whole Israelite community arrived at this particular desert and they stayed there. And there Miriam died and was buried. Poor Miriam had leprosy and then died a few weeks later. Now there was no water for the community and the people gathered in opposition to Moses and Aaron, which was a common thing that happened in that time. And they quarreled with Moses and said, you know what, if only we died when our brothers fell before the Lord, which they fell before the Lord because because they sinned, and so they're like, I wish we just sinned and died, right? That would have been better than this. Um, verse 4, why did you bring the Lord's community into this wilderness, that we and our livestock should die here? And it's, it's, a question, it's directly questioning their leadership. Guys, why are you bringing us here? You're, you're the ones who are bringing us here, there's nothing here for us, why are you doing it? Verse 5, why did you bring us out of Egypt to this terrible place? It has no grain or figs, grapevines or pomegranates, and there's no water to drink. They're wishing they were back in slavery, which is a fascinating thing to wish for, right? But things are a bit hard. We don't have all the luxuries, even though we were slaves. We'll forget about that for a minute. Um, but we don't have what we want. And so they're whinging, as we all do. Verse 6, Moses and Aaron went from the assembly, and this is good leadership, this starting bit, went from the assembly of all the people whinging to the entrance to the tent of meeting and fell face down. The tent of meeting was where God dwelt on the move, right? And so they go to this tent of meeting and fall face down in humility. They are on the ground and the glory of the Lord appeared to them. And the Lord said to Moses, take the staff that's in your hand and you and your brother Aaron gather the assembly together. Get everyone together. Speak to that rock speak to it. Speak to the rock before their eyes and it will pour out its water. You'll bring water out of the rock for the community so that they and their livestock can drink. So I'll, I'll repeat that. 
gather everyone together, speak to the rock, talk to it, and it will bring out water, and you'll have stuff to drink. Verse 9, so Moses took the staff, he's, he's A plus so far, he takes the staff in the Lord's presence just as he commanded him. Verse 10, he and Aaron gather the assembly together in front of the rock, so they're in front of the rock that they're supposed to speak to, everyone's together. And Moses says, not to the rock, but to the people, this. Listen, you rebels, which is a great, great speech. I would be annoyed as well. Listen, you rebels, must, must we, keyword, must we bring you water out of this rock? And then Moses raised his arm and whacked it twice. And water gushed out and the community and their livestock drank. And all seems fine, right? Everyone's had water, everyone's had their fill. Moses and Aaron did some stuff, things happened, and yet you read this next verse, verse 12. But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you did, and this is such a hard word to read, because you did not trust in me enough to honor me as holy in the sight of the people, you will not bring this community into the land I give them. You've led them out by my power. We've walked around for 40 years. You've seen a lot of stuff. You're not the guy who's leading them into the promised land. You're done. Finished. That's it. Leadership over. Because of this one moment. And it's so easy to skip over that, this, that reality in this story, because it's like, well, everyone drank water. The whingers got what they wanted, right? Uh, but unfortunately, Moses and Aaron missed out big time big time and again I, I as a leader I, I just I really struggle to read that phrase because it's yeah it, it, it should hit us heavily because you did not trust in me enough to honor me as holy it's not I, it's not saying because you didn't trust me it's saying because you didn't trust me that I'm bigger than everything you didn't trust that me saying speak to it stuff's going to come out of there if you just speak to it it's going to happen you don't have to whack it, you don't have to whack it, you don't have to do anything, just speak to it. Which obviously is going to point people to God, because <laughs> you can't just speak to a rock and water comes out of it, right? God missed His honour that was due to Him, because His leaders were too busy worrying about the people to honour the one that they served. And that's a really significant thing. So, backtrack to Acts for a second, it's not just about world leaders not honouring God, it's about His people not honouring God as holy. And we are all guilty of this, every single one of us. Um, that was how this whole mess began, right? Back in the garden, God was running the show, everything was great, I love the imagery of God walking, them hearing God walking through the garden in the middle of the day. There's an intimacy right, with God, which is unbelievable. There's an intimacy between humans, there's no disunity, there's no brokenness, there's no, but she said and he said and all these other things. There's an understanding that we have a role to play in society, God's given us roles, and then the whole thing breaks because we wanted to put the crown on our heads, because we wanted to run the show. God was holding out on us, oh, He didn't give us everything we wanted, so therefore we're just going to run the show ourselves, right? 
and it's exactly how this breaks too. And poor Moses, you read a few chapters later in Numbers 27, which I think is up there, and if it's not, don't worry about it, Nikki. But in Numbers 27, here is the saddest thing in the whole Old Testament to me, after Moses walking for 40 years leading these people. Numbers 27, 12. Then the Lord said to Moses, go up to this mountain in this particular mountain range and see the land I've given the Israelites. Have a look at it, mate. After you've seen it, you too will be gathered to your people as your brother Aaron was. You can see the good things, but you ain't walking in there. It is desperately sad. Four, so verse 13, after you've seen it, you too will be gathered to your people. Verse 14, for where the community rebelled at the waters in the desert, both of you disobeyed my command to honor me as holy before their eyes. That is a devastating, devastating end to Moses' life. I wouldn't ordinarily come up here and say books are great because I don't think it's helpful. But this book is really helpful. It's called uh, Truth on Fire and the subtitle is worth the ticket price, Gazing at God Until Your Heart Sings. What a great, what a great subtitle. Uh, he's an Australian guy, so I'll give him the Guernsey for that. Um, but there's, it, well, apart from the fact that the book is amazing, there's a few lines that are, are just worthy of reflection before we reflect. And this is under the, sub to, under the title in the book, The God Who Knows All. The God Who Knows All. To say that he is the God who knows is to say in the same breath that he is the God who does not learn. How can he? He knows every detail of what was, what is, and what will be. Not only that, he is intimately acquainted with every possibility that could be, but won't be. From the immense knowledge of how many stars and planets adorn his universe, note his universe, to the intimate awareness of every thought that has ever passed through your mind and mine, to the relationship between every single action along with their corresponding reactions, all that blends together to create the mega symphony of matter, sound, energy, beauty and beings that we label existence. And God knows it all. Cosmic and microscopic, past and future, at every level, with complete precision, without strain and without coffee, for those coffee addicts in the room, no wonder Paul cries out, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. He knows every part of us. There is not one molecule of our lives in thought, motive, word or action that he is not intimately familiar with. All is laid bare before him. Which is why David writes in the Psalms and he quotes it here, O oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know, when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down. You are acquainted with all my ways, even before a word is on my tongue. Behold, O oh Lord, you know it all together, or you know it completely. I read that just because it just further points out that God is sovereign, that He knows everything that was and is and is to come. And we are invited to a relationship with the God who is sovereign. We've sung all of the songs that we sung today are focusing on Him. 
and that is a deliberate desire, a prayerful desire that we would be more focused upwards than inwards. We're not trying to find ourselves, we're, we're looking to Him and allowing Him to reshape how we live and breathe and have our being, to quote Acts. In that song, He Shall Reign Forevermore, sorry Louis, I'm moving your stuff around. says to the lamb upon the throne hallelujah hallelujah to the lord forevermore and hallelujah all that word means is is praise the lord that's what hallelujah means we sing it and sometimes we don't actually know what it means it just means praise the lord and it's it's a it's just saying god you're bigger than me you're just bigger you're in control of this whole thing you run the show i'm not running the show i might like to put the crown on sometimes but it's way too big for me that responsibility is not mine It's not mine. God takes his sovereignty seriously. And we should too. Thank you, God, for that footnote. Um, But as we finish, I think what is most important here is obviously that God takes his sovereignty seriously. But more than that, he's not a dictator who just wants to ruin our lives. Right? He's a God who is loving and gracious, rich in mercy and abounding in love. That's the Old Testament's phrase. It's constant. Again, he's slow to anger, rich in mercy, abounding in love. That even though he is sovereign, he's sovereign for the good purposes of his people and his creation. That he's redeeming. He's making all things new. That when he puts his finger on something in our lives, it's for a purpose. It's not to cause us pain like a serial killer. It's, it's like a surgeon's knife right and he will point stuff out and he may be pointing something out right now and we're going to give you an extended period of time after I stop speaking to sit with that reality that if he is sovereign what needs to shift in our hearts but I land with the fact that he is a God who is love who is rich in mercy That's, it's, I love that phrasing it's, he's loaded with mercy right his wealth is in mercy He's overflowing with hope. He's a redeeming God. He doesn't want to leave us where we are. It's not helpful. He's inviting us to something more. And what that more is, is to look at Him. I want to close with a quote that is also in here. But there was a missionary called John Patton, and he had a really rough ride. Um, He was a missionary to an island full of cannibals. And so he was constantly worried about getting eaten. Um, and he was in a particularly uh, difficult situation one day and he thought he was going to die. They had all the arrows were facing him, the spears were facing him, they had these killing rocks, whatever those were. Everything was around him. He was worried that he was going to die. God redeemed him in that moment, which is amazing, and he writes a journal and reflects on that particular moment in time and he says that I was invincible until my time for my master was finished. That I was Superman until God wanted me home. And it's just, again, talking about the sovereignty of God, that God is sovereign over all things, over all things, over all things. Let's pray.
Father, as we come before you this morning, I feel like we just, I just need to bow. You are sovereign over all things. Our workplace, our relationships, our health, our lives, the universe, everything. And so often in the hustle and bustle of life, we forget that. And so, Lord, we just, I just pray that you would help us not to. Help us know our need for you in this moment and in every moment. And Father, as we just take a hard break right now, I just pray that if there's something in our lives that you just want to pinpoint where we're not trusting you enough, where we're not honouring you as holy, that you would just point it out now in a loving and gracious way. Father, I thank you that if there is things on our hearts right now that you're just pinpointing, I thank you, Father, that you are a God of love and grace and redemption, that you don't point it out to hurt us, you point it out to make us aware so that, so that we can come to you, that you can do something about it. God, if there's sin we need to confess, we just bring that before you right now. There's ways that we've not honoured you. We just bring that to you right now. Where we've fallen short in our marriages, where we haven't loved our spouses as we could or should. Father, where we've been more concerned about the work that goes on in our business than about the people. Father, where we think about our families, We think about the ways we entertain ourselves that aren't of you. Whatever it is, Lord, we just confess that to you right now. And I thank you, Lord, personally, but also for all of us, that it, you say in your word that if we confess our sins, that you are faithful and just, and that you'll forgive our sins and, and, cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That, that, means that, that means that while things were like scarlet, that you've washed them white as snow. That where you see us, you don't see our sin, that you see your son. That we are loved sons and daughters of the king. And Father, we just come to you now and we worship you in this last song. But before we do that, we just worship you with our offerings, not just with our money, Lord. That's almost too simple. It's almost too simple a way of worshipping you, Lord. 
we worship you with, by offering ourselves to you. Do what you will today. That was seemed like the summary point of the whole women's retreat yesterday. Women were doing what they wanted and they realized that, oh no, that's not where God wants me at all. God, we just, we just surrender our lives to you. Where do you want us? Who do you want us to talk to this week? What do you want us to do? Lead and guide us, Father. In your name.